What's life about? Does it have meaning? Does it have meaning for folks who are not religious? Does it have meaning for folks who have some kind of religion but don't have Christ? Does life have meaning for Christians who have given their life to Christ but maybe get discouraged from time to time? Maybe wonder, is it worth it all? Well, we'll explore some of those as we look at Solomon and what he thought about this morning. We're going to read in chapter 2 the first 11 verses. Chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, verse number 1. I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold this also is vanity. I said of laughter it is mad, and of mirth what doeth it. I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my, mine heart with wisdom, and lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I have made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth the trees. I got me servants and made maidens and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered, also, gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings. And of, the prov- uh, and of the provinces, I got me men singers and women singers, and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments that, and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes, notice this verse especially, verse 10, and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them, I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion in all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Shall we pray together? Father, we pray that you would empower us through the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, enlighten our minds. Help us even to become alert enough that we hear the still, small voice speaking within us. Lord, I pray that you'd have your work done in our hearts today. Lord, I pray for those who are saved and just need direction in life, maybe some rejuvenation, some refreshing. Lord, I pray for those who don't know Christ as Savior and have no hope of eternal life, that, Lord, that you would show them the way this day. I pray that you would bless us in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1959, there was a film. I saw this film. Uh, It was entitled On the Beach. And it portrays a group of people in Australia. They become aware that there has been an atomic war And the United States and Europe has already experienced the radioactive fallout. And this wave of radiation is sweeping across the globe and it's coming to Australia last, but it will come. 
they've had communication before those other countries were wiped out, knowing the extent of this radiation, that there's no escape. The whole world, all of humanity will be wiped out. And these characters, knowing that death will become inevitable as they hear this news, they try to cope with this truth that they're soon going to die. There's no place to run, no place to hide, nothing they can do. And so you got different actors, characters in this film. And uh, Lieutenant Commander Dwight Towers, played by Gregory Peck, he's, uh, he's the big one, the most intelligent one, the one who's got his feet on the ground the most. And, and uh, he focuses on his duty as a commander of a submarine to try to seek out some way of escape. And he throws himself into his work finding purpose in those last days to try to find some way. And there's a woman who knows the end is coming there in Australia and she seeks out this lieutenant commander and, and she tries to find some kind of consolation and solace knowing the death is coming within a few weeks or months. And so she strikes up a romantic relationship to try to just have one last fling before death comes. And there's another young man who is a scientist and he's seeking for all these answers. He's throwing himself into his research, trying to find some way to at least keep himself occupied, at least seeming to search for some kind of answer. And then there's another young man who has a family there. He has a wife and a child and and he's just trying to pretend that everything is okay and they're carrying on family life. They all know that the end is coming and that they have, I believe that that young couple uh, have a suicide pill that when the sickness gets so bad from the radiation, knowing there's no hope to survive, that they can take the pill and, and just end it all there. But they go ahead playing family life, knowing that the end is coming very quickly. And each character tries to cope in his own way with this looming death that's sweeping across the globe. And they try to do everything under the sun just to try to avoid the truth of the fact that death is coming and there's no avoiding it. They'll all soon die and they'll have to deal with this impending doom in some sort of way. This theme of the movie is not too unlike Solomon who lived centuries before. They didn't have atomic bombs then, but death was coming and Solomon knew it. And whether it's a few weeks, a few months, or a few years, we all have to face that. And he addresses it in this chapter that we're going to look at this morning. Humans feel like life should offer some kind of purpose, some kind of satisfaction, something lasting. And many struggle, perhaps most struggle today with trying to avoid the thought of, of death and the end of life and a life that is lived as though everything's okay, but it will end. And so what are we doing? Knowing that the end is coming, what are we doing 
that will make a difference and give us satisfaction now and not just denying that it's going to come, but having satisfaction and living with that knowledge that it will come. Some people pursue education, wealth, pleasure, and many of them regularly affirm that these pursuits, these achievements have not in fact provided that lasting satisfaction that their soul is thirsting for. It is said that Napoleon had suffered a humiliating defeat from Russia in the winter of 1812. It was a stubborn Russian army he was fighting. He had conquered uh, much of the world, but he's facing a stubborn Russian army and a harsh, bitter winter, and he suffers a humiliating defeat. And he said that fine line between the sublime and shameful defeat. And many times, it seems like that's what Solomon was saying. He had, he had gathered all the wealth. He had everything going for him. He was king. He had it all. And yet, having it all, he still felt defeated. And some of you might feel that way from time to time. You've got what maybe others wish they had, but you still got that nagging feeling of defeat. Solomon kind of said like Napoleon that everything he examined in the book of Ecclesiastes, everything he examined was kind of borderline, whether it's sublime or ridiculous. And his search for meaning in life is examined in this chapter in three stages. Let's look at them. First of all, we read the first 11 verses. And in the first 11 verses, we see he tested life. Number one, he tested life. He had the wherewithal to test. I mean, he was rich. He was king. He had authority. He had the wherewithal to test out life. He was kind of like a, a mad scientist trying to see, does this bring pleasure? Does that bring pleasure? Can this make me satisfied? Will that make me satisfied? Will this quench the thirst? He had everything at his disposal where he could do that, where poor people couldn't. They just had to suffer with it. So he tested life. And he tested life for enjoyment, verses 1 through 3. Uh, the Hebrew people, they rightly believed that God created things for his people's enjoyment. It's not that we have to retire from life and, and renounce all of our goods and worldly pleasures. God meant for us to enjoy his creation. 1 Timothy 6, 7 says this. Listen carefully. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So here's what he's saying. The Bible is saying that, hey, if we trust in our worldly riches, if our pursuit is just to be the, at the height, at the pinnacle of our profession, then if that's all there is, there's not much to look forward to. We're going to die and it's all going to go to somebody else. Others think, well, if I can just have pleasure, enjoyment, indulge in the things that make me feel happy for the moment, at least I'll be happy now, but I'm still going to die and what will be left after that. 
But yet God means for us to have a relationship with Him and having Him first, then we can enjoy the things around us. But if our focus is only on the things around us and not on Him, we'll feel like Solomon. All is vexation. All is vanity. It's worth nothing. Life will soon be over. Eat, drink, and be merry, and let's all die. Well, Today's world is pleasure mad, that's for sure. People spend billions of dollars for entertainment. I mean, the, while our church houses may be half vacant, the stadiums where the football games were played in the last few days were full. While Saturday night might be spent by some just sitting around the living room with their family, maybe playing some games the nightclubs and bars are usually pretty full. And so we live in a world where pleasure is sought and because if we can just soak our minds with some kind of diversion, maybe we can be happy and not think about it. I used to sell life insurance. <laughs> and I find out, found out that people don't much like to talk about life insurance because it's inevitable that life insurance only pays when you die. <laughs> And so who wants to think about that? That brings that inevitable crossing of that river that we sang about. And so who wants to think about that? People don't like to talk, people don't like to talk to funeral directors much unless they have to because that talks about death. People don't like to talk to life insurance salesmen. People don't like to talk a lot of times to a preacher who's explaining the gospel and eternal life. Because it brings about the realization, yeah, I'm going to die. But after this, what? Well, there's nothing wrong with innocent fun and having some enjoyment in life. God is not against that. He's not a big spoil sport who wants us to be miserable and just stoic all of our life, never smiling, never laughing, never having fun, never doing anything for enjoyment. God's not like that. But those who only seek, listen to me, those who only seek the pleasure, the enjoyment in this world without seeking Him first will surely come up empty in the end. Why? Why is pleasure seeking such a treacherous thing? Well, Solomon brings it out in this passage of Scripture. Pleasure seeking usually becomes a selfish endeavor Pleasure-seeking is a selfish endeavor. If God is not first, we're looking to satisfy the big number one. What I eat, what I drink, how I spend my time, where I go, it's all focused on me. And pleasure-seeking is a selfish endeavor. It can be that way even in marriage. Number two, if you live for pleasure alone, enjoyment will decrease. If you're living for enjoyment instead of for God first... That pleasure, whatever it takes, listen, you know this is true. If you just think about it for a minute. However you find pleasure apart from God, however you find pleasure, it will diminish sooner or later. And you've got to add more pleasure to it to make up for what's diminished. It's that way with people who watch pornography. It's that way with people who indulge in gambling. It's that way for people who do drugs. How many said, well, I'm just going to 
smoke a joint with some friends and then sooner or later they're laying on a sidewalk passed out in months or years to come with needles sticking in their veins. Because it, when you're seeking pleasure apart from God, just seeking enjoyment, it takes more and more and more to satisfy the addiction, whatever it may be. Number three, seeking pleasure only appeals only to that part of a person that's seeking pleasure, not to the whole person. <clears throat> We're body, soul, and spirit. And if we seek to satisfy the soul and the body, the spirit, the body and the soul and not the spirit, not God, then we've left him out and it can't bring satisfaction. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you is what the scripture says. But if we go about seeking these things without seeking him first, we're going about it in the wrong direction, the horse before the cart. So Solomon talks about enjoyment. He's talking about people who come up empty, people who are searching for meaning in life and they're looking for some way to be satisfied, looking for something that brings a lasting contentment to the soul. He says, I looked for enjoyment. I looked for pleasure. I came up empty again on that. So then he talks about not just enjoyment, but secondly, he talks about employment. Uh, he got involved in all kinds of projects. We read about them there. He said, I had great works, man. I built houses, I built cities, I built gardens and vineyards and orchards and forests and water systems to water all those things with. Solomon had a lot of things going. He was kind of a scientist, an architect, engineer. And he had a lot of things going, but he said, man, I did all those things and I had the money to do it. I had the time to do it. And I had the authority to do it. But still even that, just like enjoyment, the employment didn't pay off for him in satisfying his soul. Employment. Employment. Now that's not to say that Solomon's against working. And certainly God's not against working. What did God do in the Garden of Eden? When he put man in the Garden of Eden, he gave them the garden to dress it and to keep it. So work is good. Too many people don't work nowadays. <laughs> but work is good. We have to work harder for those who won't work. Work is good. But if we have work, our job, our employment, trying to give us the pleasure, the permanent pleasure in life without God, we will surely come up empty once again. And it can be seen... How many times have we heard about people who are workaholics? I, I grew up in a generation where everybody worked long hours. I mean, in the agricultural society where I lived, they got up at daylight and hit the fields, and they were busy working, and they came in. When the sun was going down, when it got too dark to work, they'd come home and eat supper, and they worked long hours. So nothing wrong with work. But if that's our source of contentment, and not him first. We come up empty. You can see it when people, when people use that work as a diversion to face either God, death, the inevitable. When it becomes an, 
a diversion when we sink our whole life, not just eight hours a day, not just 10 hours a day, not just 12 hours a day, but all of our life is just immersed. I, I told some of our family a few days ago, if I could go back and do it again, I'm probably the first person that's ever said that, right? If I could go back and do it again, if I could go back and do it again, I, had, I worked long hours because I thought that's what you've got to do. A man's got to supply his family's needs. He's got to work long hours. But where I went wrong was I didn't have God in the picture and the work was my diversion. I didn't have time to play with the kids. I got to work. I didn't have time to go to church. I got to work. I didn't have time to be a decent human being and help out my neighbors. I got to work. And so work became my diversion to keep me from having to do anything else. And that's where I went wrong. Now thankfully they're all sweet people in my family and all forgiven me. And if I could go back and do it all over again, I'd still work hard. But instead of setting time, what time I had not working, instead of setting that time to go and hoot it up with the boys... I would have took that time and invested it in my family. His employment, boy, he had flocks and herds and wealth, gold and silver, but he was still unhappy. Solomon was still unhappy. How many times have we heard people who reached the pinnacle of fame, Hollywood, sports, riches, the corporate world, they've got it all, and they go home and put a bullet through their head. So that obviously doesn't satisfy or they wouldn't just kill themselves because they couldn't find anything bringing lasting pleasure. The journey for Solomon and for people today, the journey can be a pleasure, but the destination can be misery. Solomon tested life. He tested life in enjoyment and employment. Put his job ahead of everything else. Put his pleasure ahead of everything else. And didn't have a place where God fit into the equation. And so he came up feeling empty. And he said, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. You can almost hear the wailing, the weeping in his soul. Man, I had it all but I still didn't feel satisfied. And number two, Solomon hated life. Verses 12 through 23, he began to hate life. He said, man, if this is all there is, if this is just what it's all about, I just work hard and nothing seems to satisfy. I mean, there's a little fun while, you know, I got drunk and it felt good for a little while, but then I woke up the next morning. I had fun going to the game and, and, and that was fun. Nothing wrong with that, but then I had to go back to work. So I had fun while it lasted. The problem is it just didn't last. And friend, when we leave God out of the equation, it won't last beyond the grave. Solomon hated life. He says, <clears throat> he said, I turned myself to behold. Let's see, if that, is that in verse number 12? Yeah, verse number 12. He said, and I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly he said, I turned myself. He said, I looked at all this stuff and I saw, man, I tried 
I tried the enjoyment, tried the employment, tried just bringing myself to a point of pleasure, but it didn't last. So I turned to myself and I said, I've got to look at this from another point of view. You know what some of you, and maybe some are watching on camera, you know what you need to do is turn from what you presently think and believe and hold, turn and take a look at it from another point of view. Solomon said, man, I just, I hated, I hated life. The French essayist Montaigne wrote, philosophy is no other thing than for a man to prepare himself to death. Philosophers have always asked the question, why are we here? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Why does it matter? And where will I be after the grave? Well, Solomon considered his wisdom, verses 12 through 17. He's doing all these experiments on life. How many of us could say we've really done a lot of experimenting and came up empty? I've tried a lot of nonsensical stuff in my life. I've done a lot of dumb stuff. And after it was over, I thought, why did I do that? That's dumb as a box of rocks. That didn't work. I should have known it wouldn't work. And then he says, in these following verses, he says, the wise man, he said, I'm looking at wisdom. And Solomon was known as the wisest man on earth. He said, I'm looking at it now from the point of wisdom. And he said, I found out that the Wise man and the fool is going to die the same way. That grave is going to be six foot deep for both of us. The French humanist Voltaire said, I hate life and yet I'm afraid to die. I hate life, but I'm afraid to die. Solomon kind of felt that way. And you might even paraphrase that statement as, I'm just disgusted with life. I don't want to live, but the alternative is not very good. I hate this life. There's probably people listening right now who have said that in your lifetime. I just hate my life. Well, the healthy Christian believer, the healthy Christian believer would never hate his life. The healthy Christian believer would never contemplate taking his life. The healthy Christian, I'm talking about spiritually healthy, emotionally healthy, should love life. 1 Peter 3.10 And we ought to seek, as Christians, seek to putting the most into life that we can because we put God first and everything that we do Every bit of our enjoyment, every bit of our pleasure, every bit of our employment, everything that we do is filtered through God's will before we do it. We live by promises and not by explanations. He considered his wisdom. He considered his wealth. And he said, man, I'm just going <laughs> to read through this chapter two this week. He's saying, I... I hated my life. I've got everything and I'm going to die. 
and leave it all to somebody else. And it may be somebody that's dumber than me. It's going to take all of that wealth that's just heaped in their lap and they're going to waste it. Well, <laughs> he gave three reasons why he was disgusted with his wealth. <clears throat> Let me say, you know this. <clears throat> First of all, you can't keep it. You can't keep your wealth. When you die, somebody else is going to have it. Somebody else is going to live in that big house. Somebody else is going to drive your car. Somebody else is going to have your bank account. Somebody else is going to have the fun in the future. Everything that you worked for, every, all the land that you bought, everything that you held dear in life, you can't take it with you. There are no U-Hauls at the funeral home. Money is kind of a necessary evil, I guess. We have to have it. You've got to pay the light bill. You've got to buy groceries. It takes more of it than it used to. Seems like a lot of times there's more month than there is money. <clears throat> We've got to have an income, and we're supposed to work. A writer in the Wall Street Journal called money an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven. And as a universal provider of everything except happiness. If you depend on money to bring you happiness, you're barking up the wrong tree. You and I are stewards of our money. God gives us a certain amount of gifts, talents, abilities, income. And we're stewards of what we do with that. He's not advocating just take it all and throw it away. Become, a, become an old monk out there with a robe and... Bald head and long hair sitting on the wall just chanting. We have to exist in this world. And we ought to be wise about the way we use our money. I mean, we will get old someday and need a little retirement income, so it's wise to make preparation, isn't that right? It's wise to have some things laid back. But if that's where we find our happiness and we're not looking beyond the river, that's all going to fade and it's going to become somebody else's. It's not going to last. It won't last beyond the grave. You can't protect your wealth and you can't take it with you. And if God is not in the picture, you can't enjoy it like you should. Somebody has said in numbers of missions conferences and Stewardship conferences in churches. A lot of preachers have said, you can't take your money with you, but you can send some of it ahead. What do they mean? When you're giving to missions to reach other people for Christ and souls are saved and they gain eternal life, you get credit for whatever gifts you gave to Faith Promise Missions, you get credit for it in heaven. When you tithe to your local church, and you give because you love the Lord, it accrues to your account in heaven, even though it may go through the hands of other people, the credit still remains in heaven because you've helped to reach others to see people saved and discipled and helped for the cause of Christ. Now at this point, Solomon appears to be very pessimistic, but he doesn't remain that way for very long. In a step of faith, he reaches to the third stage of his experimentation. Number three, he accepted life. 
Look at verse number 24. In verse 24, he finally says, There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight and wisdom, knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. I guess he came to this conclusion after he experimented with life. He tried enjoyment and employment and he said it all comes up empty when that's just focused on that and not on God. But he said when you get your focus on God, when you turn yourself from thinking about self and things of the world and you turn to yourself. Listen, I'm talking about making God first in everything. I'm one of those old kind of Christians that just believes everything ought to come through the Bible. If it's, if it's not biblical, it's probably not worth pursuing. And everything, every decision we make, where we work, where we get an education, how we spend our money, where we go to church, the things we do with our children to raise them upright, all of that needs to be filtered through the Bible. What does God want us to do? If God wants us to behave in a certain way, it's going to pay off in eternal rewards and not be wasted at the end of this life to be heaped upon somebody else. He accepted life. You and I can't do anything about the fact that death is coming. I mean, you can prepare for it. But once death comes, it's over. If you're looking, as Solomon was at that previous point where he's looking at life under the sun and not above the sun, if everything is just done on a worldly plane and not a spiritual plane, then the day is coming when it'll all vanish away. I graduated from high school in 1969. There was a song that was popular at the time by Peggy Lee. A few of you might remember it. The title of the song is, Is That All There Is? Is That All There Is? That was her song. She started off the song by speaking about when she was 10 years old, her dad picking her up and carrying her out of the house as their house burned down. And she looked on as the house burned and fell and turned to ashes. She said, it seemed like it was a big thing, but then as I looked at it and it was all over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a house fire? When she was 12 years old, her dad took her to a circus, the greatest show on earth. And she saw the clowns and she saw the, the riders and she saw the trapeze artists. She saw the animals and she saw everything at the circus and was excited about it for a little while. But then when they left, she said she asked herself the question. I still feel a little bit empty. Is that all there is to a circus? And then she went on in the song to talk about life itself as a whole. When we look at life itself as a whole, Peggy Lee said, is that all there is? Is that all there is? And she said, when I die, I'm sure I will just sit there and think, 
Was that all there is? Now she was wrong about that. That's not all there is. You may think that death brings an end to everything. You may think that death will put you out of your misery and you'll just be dead like a dog and nothing else. You say, well, that's what I believe. I'm an atheist. It doesn't matter what you believe. It matters what God believes. And that's why Solomon said, I had to turn myself and look from another point of view. If you live for self, you live for pleasure, you live for the world, there will come a day when, de- when death will come and life will be over. It's inevitable. You can't escape it. And whether you choose to think about it or not, you'll die someday. And the question is, where will you be five minutes after you die? Friend, there is a heaven and there is a hell and there's a God in heaven who gives you a chance to receive Jesus Christ as Savior today. You can be born again. You say, well, I don't even feel the need to be religious. I don't even feel the need to be born again. That doesn't matter. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And whether you're aware of it or not, you are a sinner because the Bible says so, God says so, and you're a sinner. You say, well, what difference does that make? I don't care to be a sinner because sin must be paid for. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Speaking of eternal death, everybody's going to die the physical death. But the eternal death is being cast into the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone forever and ever. You say, preacher, are you glad about hell? No, I wish there wasn't a hell, to be honest with you. I wish nobody would go there. But if I'm going to be honest, I've got to tell you there is a hell because Jesus said there is a hell. He said it's a place where the flame is not quenched, where the worm dieth not, that worm of gnawing intrusion. You will have a body in hell. You will have a mind in hell. The man, the rich man who died and went to hell in Luke chapter 16, it says he lift up his eyes in hell, being in torments. And he could see across the great gulf and he said, he said, Abraham, would you send someone to dip there, send Abraham to dip his finger in a drop of water, just put a drop of water on my tongue. He was told, no. No, you made your choice in your lifetime. You say, but the day I die, can I not have another chance? Not according to the Bible. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. He died on Calvary's cross to pay for that sin which everyone who is born on this earth is born with a sin nature. And there's nothing that can change that except the blood of Christ. You can't reform yourself. You can't change your ways. I heard people say, well, I've changed my ways. That doesn't get you into heaven. If you accept Christ as your Savior, He's paid for your sin with His precious blood. And there is no other payment. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If Jesus is honest, and you know he is, he said there's no Muslim way to be saved, no Hindu way to be saved, no Pentecostal way to be saved, no Baptist way to be saved. There is a Bible way, and that's trusting in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Friend, you can't just say I'm turning over a new leaf. It doesn't work that way. 
You see, if you could get saved by changing your ways, turning over a new leaf, and just becoming different in your actions, then there would have been no need for Jesus to die on the cross. He died on the cross because there is no hope for you apart from His blood. He was the sinless Son of God, and when He died on the cross, He paid for your sins with His sinless blood. You can't pay for your sins nor anybody else's sins because you've got sinful blood. Jesus died for you. There is no other answer to eternal life except receiving Jesus as Savior. And friend, there is a judgment after this life. There's a judgment for Christians. I don't mean you're judged to see whether you go to heaven or hell, but there is a judgment seat of Christ to see how well you served Him. And that's why if we look at Solomon's whole story, that's why it's important how we live after we get saved. Not to get saved, but in order to please Him and earn rewards in heaven. We will all appear at that judgment seat of Christ, the book of Romans says. And for all those who have not accepted Christ as personal Savior at a specific point in life, the Bible says that there is another judgment for them. It's called the white throne judgment. It's in Revelation chapter number 20. It says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. And whosoever was not found in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's only two places to go. Heaven and hell. Two places. If you've been saved by honestly placing your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, then heaven is your home. If you have not made that decision, you are by default headed for the other place. You don't have to make a conscious decision to go to hell. That's default because we're sinners. So a conscious decision to receive Christ removes us from that broad path to hell and puts us on the narrow path to heaven. Jesus loves you. He wouldn't have died for you if he hadn't loved you. And he wants to save you. It matters, Christian, how you live. It matters, lost person, whether you receive Christ or not. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'd bless during this invitation time. Lord, I remember April 13th, 1980, when I came to this place in my life. I was sitting in a church, Lord, and you spoke to my heart. You made me aware that I was a sinner and that I was headed for hell. And Lord, you gave me the choice to receive Jesus or to reject him. Oh Lord, I can't claim any credit for receiving him. I can only say thank you for giving me a Savior, the gift of eternal life. Thank you. And Lord, I pray for those under the sound of my voice today would make a decision like that right now. They'd say, Lord, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I believe you died for me. I want to be saved. I'm placing my faith in you to save me because of what you did for me on the cross. Lord, we understand the gospel in the Bible means exactly the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He was a substitution in our place for our sins and that he's the only way. I pray that you'd bless us during this time of invitation. 